a generation ago, global workers um, and missionaries identified something they called the 1040 window. In this window, they looked upon the map and they saw places the world over that needed Jesus. One of the leading proponents of that 1040 window is a guy who recently retired and, and he was asked, you know, where's the window now that where they really need Jesus? And he actually identified something he called the, the 414 window. And he says, you know where they need Jesus? In America. And it's between ages 4 to 14. So he shifted the 1040 window to 4 to 14 as a reminder that we, the church, you know, we are called to invest in that generation to come. One of the ways we want to do that this morning is to, to give a prayer for um, children, um, youth, and students, and also for all the educators, for people who make it their life mission to be in our school district, to be in our public schools, our private schools, and to love and serve children in this way. Uh, Pastor Nate is being a slacker and getting married to this morning, so he's not here. Um, but I did ask him to, to write a prayer that he could say as a blessing over the students. So I'm going to read his prayer, and then I'll pray as well for the educators. So I just want to invite, um, if you're a student, uh, if you work in education, in any role in education, uh, whether it's a volunteer or a dean, whether it's a teacher or a bus driver like um, Sister Phyllis has prayed for, I'd like to invite you to stand. And what I want to do is I want us who are not educators um, to, to gather around them, you know, ask permission, right? But to, to put hands on them as well so they can feel, I think it's very, very important that we as a body put our arms around them to say not only thank you, but we bless you and put you with this blessing. So as I pray for them, I want to invite you to find someone around you and just put your hand on them so they know that touch and that love of the community around them. Let's pray. First for the students. Father, we pray for your grace and empowerment of your spirit to be upon every child and every youth this school year. We pray that you would empower every student to learn of all that you desire for them to learn in the upcoming school year, to thrive in the abilities and gifts you've given them. Father, would you give them wisdom to make God-honoring decisions that grows their relationship with you, allowing them to experience and see you in a new way. Use the children, use the youth, Father, to be a light of your kingdom with their friends, in their families, and in their schools, and among their fellow classmates. Father, would you create opportunities for our children and for our youth to tell of Jesus to their fellow classmates and their friends? Father, we ask for your protection to be upon every student, that every student will be able to abide under your shadow, Almighty Father that you will guard each step they take and surround them with angels, guiding and leading them everywhere they go. Father, we pray for a fruitful school year full of your love, presence, and grace surrounding each student. Father, thank you for what you're doing in their lives of these children and youth and continue to do a great work in them. Father, what you've started, you promised to bring to completion. So Father, continue the transformative work you're doing in their lives and may it bear fruit for your kingdom purposes. And Lord, we pray for all our educators, as Sister Felicity said, for everyone who's part of this education system, for parents, for bus drivers, for teachers, for counselors, for deans, for principals. Lord, we thank you that they're willing to hear your call. Where the world sees broken as they're willing to say, Lord, let's go and help. Where the world might see darkness or people might see a place to complain, Lord, they're in the trenches. I pray that you fill them up with more of you. Fill them up with more grace, more compassion, more love, more mercy. Let them be a light where they are. Lord, empower them to do small things for these students with great love, to pour into them, to show them there's a better way, and to most of all glorify you. God, I pray this morning that you fill them with your Holy Spirit, that you fill them with wisdom, that you fill them with more of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that as they work this school year, 
We thank you they don't do it for a paycheck, but we pray, Lord, that they do it for your kingdom come, for your will to be done. Empower our students. Empower our educators. Let them come together to shine your light for your kingdom come and your will be done in our entire region. In your holy and precious name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you. Children are dismissed to the back. Starting with Pastor SDS earlier this week, and I realized that I started this First John series in September 2015. <laughs> Hopefully in the future I move a little quicker. Um, but it's been a joy to, to be in this, uh, this book. It's been wonderful to dwell and sit with it for three years. Uh, it's just, it's amazing. So this, this morning sermon is on love, right? And in walking with Nate, you know, they're getting ready to celebrate their wedding. I don't know if they're married yet. They might be married already. Praise God. Um, but, but this week we're going to talk about love. And I just, I thought about them and I, and I think it's important for us as a congregation to not just wish them, you know, well and, and pray for them, but, but to commit for praying for them. I think one of the, the joys of being a community is that we get to love each other. And I think that's one way we can love. So John talks about love and he takes it a little bit different. We're going to get in that in a second, but just also want to be intentional that we're, we're, we're committing to not just celebrate with Crystal and Nate today, but to commit to pray for them as well. Uh, let's pray for the sermon this morning. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you that you are love. We thank you that you fill us with love. We thank you that you so love you sent your son. We thank you that you do love that you sent your spirit. We thank you that you so love this world that you've left behind your church. God, we pray this morning that as a church, as your body, that we can commit to loving the way God loves, that we can commit to loving, that we can ask to be filled with your spirit, filled with compassion, filled with mercy, filled with grace, and filled with love. Lord, teach us how to love the way you love and help us to so glorify you with our love. In your holy and precious name. Amen. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading 1 John 4, 7 to 21. Usually I try to like chunk off passages, but this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's very foundational. Uh, John is kind of like the guru on New Testament teaching on love. And it's really, really hard to find where in this passage to cut it off. So we're going to read the whole thing. And I, I trust it's going to be a blessing to you because a lot of what we've been talking in John, 1 John especially, shows up here again and again. But he just says it a lot better. You know, a lot of times it's okay to just let Scripture speak for Scripture. Amen? All right, let's read together. 1 John 4, 721. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not know God, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is 
love. Whoever lives in love loves in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that you, we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. One of the things that's fun about this passage, a lot of times you read the, the passage and you're just like, what are they talking about here? What's the major theme I got to get by here? This is not one of those passages, right? You read this and you're like, yep, he's talking about love. Got it, right? Love. And it makes sense because, like I shared, John is really the father of all the New Testament teaching on love. One of the things I love about John is, you know, there's three ways when, he, when it comes to Jesus that he's described by people close to him, right? The first one was Peter, who we prayed for for his zeal, right? Peter's a man of action. Jesus is walking on water. Peter says, I, I, I get that you 11 are okay, but if that's you, I want to walk with you, right? Like, they send a whole garrison to come and arrest Jesus. Peter finds one sword, and he's ready to fight, right? Peter's a man of action. When he looked at Jesus, he says, he who did no sin, because Peter was all about that action, right? Paul, probably the greatest New Testament scholar, writer of, you know, most of the New Testament and confuser of Christians the world over, right? Like he'll say one thing and then the next episode he says the exact opposite. And you're like, what do we do with this, Peter, right? Or Paul. But one of the things I love about Paul was he's very much an academic. And when he looked at Jesus, right, he talked about the mind of Jesus. And he says, he who could do no sin. Like even in his mind and his person, it was impossible. But John, I think, has the best explanation of Jesus. He looked at Jesus through and through. You have to remember that Jesus in his lifetime safely spoke to hundreds of thousands of people. You know, I think sometimes we try to stupefy Jesus' impact, and we're like, yeah, he's just this little carpenter on the side of a hill, right? But then when you read the scriptures, some things stick out to you. Like, number one, he fed 5,000, right? But we were a little chauvinistic back then, so we didn't include women and children. And if you weren't sure we were chauvinistic back then, we did it again because he fed another 4,000. And again, we didn't include women and children. So even if you just look at who he fed, right, Jesus in his lifetime spoke the gospel and showed God's love to thousands of people, tens of thousands of people. Might not even be that crazy to think the little carpenter we worship spoke to hundreds of thousands of people. But of those, you know, this actually makes me feel good as a preacher. It's not a good business model when you invest to that many people and you only get a small margin back. It's not really good for business, right? But it feels good for me because I'm like, if Jesus booked the hundreds of thousands and only maybe a thousand believed, you know, like it's not a good profit margin there. But what I'm saying is he spoke to hundreds of thousands and we know that thousands believe. But of those thousands that believe, we know that there were 72 that he marked out to say, hey, I want you to not just wait till I'm gone, but to take this with you, to go town to town, go in groups of two and tell them salvation has come. And of that 72, Jesus had a smaller group of 12, you know, and I used to struggle with this. I used to be like, well, really, it's like 11 and a half, right? Like, we can't really count Judas. Like, did he really get it, you know? And I think that's unfair to Judas, right? There's 12 disciples. It's okay to say 12, right? But these are people who lived with him every single day. Every single day they woke up with the God of this universe. 
Every single day they walked with him. Every single day they saw him go through life as God, but also life as man. But in of that 12 disciples, he has this, what I call the inner sanctum, right? The, 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 the core group of four. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The first four, we believe, that he called into the ministry. And the reason these are important is because think about who was with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? When they get up, they see Jesus, and they're like, oh my gosh, you're like a prophet. It's like Elijah up there. And I can almost imagine God the Father being like, no, 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 that's my son. He is God. He's greater than your prophets, right? But this inner sanctum, who were the first called, were also the ones in Gethsemane. And if you want to feel good about being a Christian, you know, a lot of times we're really good in North America, especially, of beating ourselves up as Christians, right? Like, we're not good enough. Or, or like, I struggle too much with this, this, and this. This is why we're talking about love this morning, because here's the joy of being a Christian. God loves you. You don't have to worry about your luggage and your baggage of not being good enough. You know, I, when I was young, I used to say, I used to love, like, there's nothing that I can do to make God love me less. There's nothing I can do to make God love me more. And all that remains true. But sometimes I think you just got to take a step back and be like, God loves me. And that's all you need. Right? You don't have to worry about what you bring to the table, what you've done or what you haven't done, whether you're good enough or bad enough. God loves me. And it's good to sit there, Right? But when you want to feel good, though, you look at Christians in the Bible, it makes you feel real good about yourself, I'm telling you, right? Like, Jesus, on the night he's about to be betrayed, right? He's praying, and in one scripture it says, like, it's like his sweat was like drops of blood to the floor, right? Jesus is in this mental anguish, right? I hope Nate didn't go through this, but a lot of times people get nervous on their wedding day, right? And I used to struggle with that as a kid. I'm like, this makes no sense. Like, hopefully you didn't just meet the night before and decide to do this, right? Like, hopefully you've had, I don't know, a relationship, you know? Hopefully even better than that, God has said, this is the one I want you to partner with and continue working together. Hopefully somewhere along the line, God's blessed it and, and you feel good. And, I mean, you might even have months to plan the day. Like, it makes no sense to get nervous, right? But then I got back to Gethsemane, and I'm like, huh, this is interesting. Jesus is God. His whole life, he knew why he came. His whole life, he told people what's going to happen, right? But yet, when it comes to Gethsemane, when he had to accept what God's will is, right? God had to empower him to go through. So it wasn't just nervousness in Gethsemane, but it was very human. And I love Gethsemane because you see the human Jesus. Me as a kid, when they're like, Jesus walked down water, I'm like, that's great. He's God. That's not, that's cool. I mean, he's God. If you spoke it into existence, you should walk on it. That's my rule. Um, you know, it's just like, it's not that big of a deal. But when I saw Jesus in Gethsemane, even though his whole life he knew he was supposed to die, when I saw him struggle in Gethsemane and needed his, his, his people around him and angels around him and him to get to a point of saying, not my will, but your will be done. That's when I said, that's my savior. But then you remember the, the disciples in Gethsemane, they fell asleep a couple times, right? Like Jesus about to die and be betrayed. And they're like, I need a nap. Right? You didn't feel better about your Christianity. Just remember, you did not fall asleep when Jesus is about to die and get betrayed. So there you go. Blessing. <laughs> but of that inner sanctum and those four, John was Jesus' best friend. He's the one who knew Jesus the most. And, and they try to get this through the scripture. And I, I also used to struggle with this idea. It's like, how come they're all okay with him being the disciple Jesus loved? Right? Like, there's no way I can read that. This is just my pride, and God's been working on me. If I'm back then with them, I was like, can it be like the two disciples Jesus loved? Like, can it be like John and Henry? You know, that's what God calls me Henry. It's my birth name. Right? But can it be like John and Hank? Like, can we be like two in there? Right? And I was struggling with like, why is he the disciple Jesus loved? Like, he loved everybody. He's God. He loves everyone. Right? 
But what I realized is they're trying to get to this thing where they said there was something different about their relationship. There was something about love that John understood that the rest of us are still trying to understand. And when I got to the epistle of 1 John, which we've been in for three years now, I realized what that thing is. The deepness of relationship that Jesus had with John is what he desires to have with all of us. Jesus wants to be your best friend. He wants to be your all in all, right? And the proof of this is when Jesus was on the cross dying for the sins of the world. You know, in our culture, I said this before, in our culture, you know, you inherit from your parents. Well, some of us. You inherit from your parents, right? You get stuff passed down. In Jesus' culture, the kids are expected to provide for their parents. Like, it is your job to take care of your parents. And as the oldest son, Jesus was expected to provide for Mary, especially we believe that um, her husband was gone, right? Joseph had died. It was his job, but he knew what? I'm going to die and be raised up. I'm going to go to heaven, right? One of the things I love about Scripture is God spoke the world into existence, and it's amazing, but he's working on heaven. You ever dwell on that for a second, right? Like A lot of people think the argument is like, was it a six days, a literal six days? I'm like, no, 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 no. The big thing is he spoke the world into existence. Like, start there, right? Like, we waste all our energy arguing about the six days. He spoke it, and it came to be, right? But he's been working on heaven. <laughs> he's been working on heaven till it's perfect for you. I go to prepare a place. He didn't speak heaven into existence. He goes to prepare it and work on it for you. Right? But what I love is when he's dying on the cross for our sins, he looks down and the disciples had ran away. The people who had followed him had turned their back. But who was at the foot of the cross? The women who were faithful to him and John, his best friend. And he looks down at John and he says, John, behold your mother. And he looks at Mary, his mother, and said, Mary, behold your son. The kind of relationship they had was that Jesus could trust his earthly responsibility to his best friend to provide for his mother. That's the kind of relationship they had. So when John looks at Jesus and he says, in whom there is no sin. And this morning he says, but what he does have is love. John sees love as the basis of us knowing God. John sees love as the basis of us seeing God at work in the work. He sees love as the basis of us obeying God. And he paints it a couple different ways. We'll get to how he does it in the epistle, which is our sermon this morning. But remember, John also wrote the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospel of John. And if you remember this one scene where, where Jews were, were claiming Abraham but not Jesus. Here's a little secret I'm going to tell you, right? God has never been interested in your earthly heritage getting you into the kingdom. It's a shocker to some of us, but the blood that flows in our veins does not matter as much as the blood that flowed on Calvary's tree. It's never been about who you are or what you look like that gets you into the kingdom. It's always been about faith. We tell kids the Israelites left Egypt, but when you read the actual Exodus, you realize it was the Israelites and everyone who believed. We looked at Israel in the Old Testament in all its glory, and we forget that God says, yeah, the temple, my house should be a house for all people. But Israel, you're supposed to be a light for the world. And we look at Israel in all its glory, whether it's under David or Solomon, you see so many different people of the world coming here to Israel and making it their home. Look at David's mighty men. 
Look at the people who visited Solomon. God has always intended for his people to go out and share his love with the world. It's never been about our heritage. It's always been about Jesus' blood and not the blood that flows in our veins. It's always been about the world and not just my world. Do you hear the significance this morning? Because I hope that changes your Christianity. Jesus is not here for me and mine. Jesus is here for us. For God so loved me, yes, but God so loved Love the world that he sent his son. It's always about all of us, amen? And these Jews were claiming that we know Father Abraham, but we don't know you. And I can almost imagine Jesus here. If he was me, I'm a little bit petty, right? If he was me, I'd be like, I made Abraham, really? Like, that's cute that you're, you're putting your loyalty to Abraham. I made him. But Jesus said, you claim Abraham, but if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come here on my own, but God sent me. You can't claim Abraham and not know Jesus because Abraham called Jesus God. Love is also the basis for following God and it's how we see God at work. In the epistle of John, after Jesus washes the disciples' feet, Right, which I've been dwelling on for the last 15 years, how the God of this universe would stoop low as his servant and wash the disciples' feet. The lowest job of all the slaves, all the servants, that's what Jesus did. And you see the flesh pop up a little bit and they start arguing about who will be greater. But in the core of that message is something that Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is not a suggestion. This is not a, I will try to love the people around me. This is not, I try my best, but they're just unlovable. Right? Love one another is a commandment. Love one another is what the God of this universe says. If you follow me, this is what you do. If you want to see God at work in the world, love one another. And then the last one is, John says, love is obedience to God. One of the the first verses I learned was um, John 15, 13, which says, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down their life for their friends. And what's fascinating about that verse is at the end of it, Jesus says, you're my friends if you do what I command. That's interesting. We don't get that part, right? You're only my friends if you do what I command. Paul, the thinker, thought about it. He says, you know what's even more amazing than Jesus' love for us is that we weren't his friends when he died. We were the enemies of God. We were the children of rebellion. We had chosen to follow our own way. When he died on the cross for our sins, we weren't yet in the family. We're in the family in the sense that God created us, but we weren't yet home. He made it possible for us to come home. Greater love has no one than this. Jesus tops that greater love because he died for us even when we were lost to darkness. Love is the basis, how we know God, how we see God, how we obey God. And throughout 1 John, this is what he's been talking about. He says, you know what? If you love God, you want to know God, keep his commandments. If you love God, you want to see God, you have to live in love like Jesus lived and loved. It's not an option. You have to love the way Jesus loved. You know, I love when he says, love one another as I have loved you. Because in our culture, we're very fond of saying, treat people how you want to be treated, right? And that's great for the world out there. But Jesus says, treat people how I treat you. That's a little bit harder, right? Because if you treat people how they want to be treated or how you think they should be treated, you might go, you know, pound for pound. You know, you slam the door in my face, I slam the door in your face, right? You say something bad about me, I say something bad about you. But treating people the way God treats them, that's a little bit different. Because 
I love those people who I might even dare call enemies. I love those people who hurt me. I love those people who don't care about me. I love those people who want to leave me behind. I love those people who aren't maybe deserving of love. Our call isn't to treat people how they want to be treated or even how we think we should be treated. Our call is to treat them and love them like Jesus loved them. And Jesus says, you want to see God work? Love the church. You know, I think one of the things we're really good at is telling all the things the church is not. And I'm not saying the church hasn't hurt us. I'm not saying the church is perfect. I'm not even saying the church is, you know, outside of God, the church isn't good. It's just man, right? We need God for the church to be good. I get that. But what I will say is Jesus is pretty significant through John saying, if you want to follow me, you have to love your brother and sister. And John says it multiple times in this passage. How can you love God, but not the people who you do see? How can you love God, but not the person sitting next to you? How can you love God, but not the person who lives next to you? How can you love God, but not the person in the cubicle next to you? How can you love God, but not the boss, right? Love one another. And what's fascinating, though, is when we come to 1 John 4, 7 to 21, you see all these themes John has been talking about. Keep the commandments. Live in love like Jesus. Love the people around you. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. All these things are there. But when you come to this passage, like I said, like, it's hard to not know what he's talking about here. He's talking about love. Now, we all have different translations, right? So I don't know. My count was different than yours. Maybe it's not a big deal. You know, like mine's probably right or something. But in my version of the Bible, in 1 John 4, 7 to 21, right, 19 times the word love appears, right? In 15 verses, 19 times. So in case you didn't know what he's talking about, he's talking about what? Love, right? 19 times it appears. But you know what's interesting, though? He's talking about a specific kind of love, right? So, for example, Pastor Woody preached last week about Jesus restoring Peter on the beach. A lot of people wax poetic about, you know, first he says, you know, filial love. And that's like the, 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 the brotherly love and sisterly love and friendship. Then he does agape love, you know. But what's fascinating about this is all 19 times he uses the same word for love. So it means that maybe there's something deeper John is saying than just love and just like random love that, that can mean anything to all things. And that's what I mean by that. For example, I love God. I do. I love my wife. I love my family. I love the church and what the church is doing in the world through the spirit of God. I love this church. I love steak. I love burgers. I love the New York Mets, which as I was making the list, the next thing that popped in my head is I love laughter. I think God has a sense of humor. You know, I love the Mets and laughter. They just flowed for some reason. I, I appreciate y'all laughing at my pain, but it's built up good character. See, what I'm saying, though, is that we need to realize that when John's focusing on one kind of love, we need to ask the question, what kind of love is he talking about? He had all these different options of love he could use. But in all these verses, every 19 times love is mentioned in this passage, he uses the word agape. Now, when I got to seminary, I learned it was agape, right? Because I've been putting agape, I put the, the syllable on the wrong, you know? I'm going to say agape this morning because that's what I grew up saying, right? But apparently it's agape. But 19 times he uses this same version of love. Why is that significant? He could have used eros, right, which is the love you have for a spouse. He could have used his philia, which is the love you have for a friend except in Philadelphia. He could have used storge, right, which is the love you'll have for your children or family. But every single time, all 19 times, he uses agape. 
That's significant. The other thing that's even fascinating is when he talks to the people and he says, my children. Some, um, some translations will say beloved, right? Even that word, beloved or my children, it's agapetoi, which means the people who I love the way God loves. So even when he says my little children are beloved, he's using this same agape. He's using the same agape love saying the love of the people, my people, that I love the way God loves you. Why is this significant? What is this agape love? If you've been here long enough, you've heard me wax poetic about this Old Testament concept of hesed, right? Hesed is the same as agape. Hesed to the Old Testament, agape in the New Testament is this idea of God's love that's in action. This idea of God's love that's personal. God's love to the disadvantaged, the weak, the marginalized. God's love and his unmerited favor to his people. God's love that's not, not out of obligation, but just grace and mercy. God's love that's faithful. God's love that's lasting. God's love that's loyal. God's love that's kind. God's love that's good. And you know this concept. It shows up in your, your Old Testament all the time. You know, it's like, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do God's justice, to love the way God loves, and to walk in peace and shalom with your brothers and sisters. That's Micah. Or maybe my favorite one in, in Psalm 23, David at the end says, Surely goodness and God's love shall follow me and chase me down until I'm captured all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. You know this concept of Hesed. The agape says love is God's love in action. Which should tell us that love is not just what we say, it's got to be what we do. It's good if you tell me you love me. It's better if you show me you love me. It's personal. You know, some of us have budgets. Actually, all of us should have budgets, right? All of us. Now, in your budget, you know, you can do it a bunch of different ways. But in, in the budget, usually, you know, you have, like, the stuff that's coming in, the stuff that's going out, the bills and all that. But usually in the budget, you got a little bit of wiggle room, right? Like that little bit of wiggle room where it's just like, ah, this is money I can spend on me. This is money I can do anything with it. Now, for some of us, that money might just be a dollar for a donut, right? Now, for others of us, you know, that might be like a new T-shirt or a haircut or getting our nails done or getting pedicures, whatever, right? It's that little bit of money for you, right? For some of us, you know, that might be a new car, right? Like it's your little wiggle room, right? In the Old Testament, Moses, when he looked at Israel, says, the joy you have with that little bit of wiggle room money when you spent it, that's how God looks at you. The joy you have when you bite into that donut with your own money, that's how God feels about you. The joy you have when you get that pedicure that's part of your spending is how God feels about you. When you buy that new car, when you get your hair done, that money, that's me money, that's how God feels for you. When you feel like, man, this is just so good to spend me money on me, that good that you feel is how God feels for you. God's love is personal. But God also is the love of the disadvantaged and the weak. Time and time again in scripture, you know, one of the greatest things about the Old Testament you can learn is that God is the hero of the story. I wish my Sunday school teachers had said that to me because as a kid, it messed me up. I'm just like, I'm supposed to follow this person? They're terrible. You know, it's just like, how can I follow? And at some point, I have someone need to tell me, God is the hero of the Old Testament and the New Testament. God's the hero of the story. And he uses us as broken mortals to do his work. It's not about whether or not we're good enough. It's not whether or not we're perfect enough. 
if we're willing to surrender to him, God will use all of us for his glory and for his kingdom come. Amen? God's love is for those people, though, that society leaves behind. Anyone who's marginalized, anyone who's oppressed, anyone who's left behind, anyone who this society look at as weak, anyone who is them, that's who God loves. God's love is also grace and mercy. You know, for example, I pay taxes. This has been recorded. I pay taxes, Sam. That's me and Uncle Sam. You know they listen to everything, so you just got to be prepared. I've accepted that. Some of you may think I'm crazy. I've accepted that, so it's, it's a freedom there. But when I pay taxes, I don't really take joy in paying taxes, right? Like, especially because I believe that, you know, we should be about giving life, you know? So it's like a lot of time I look at what the taxes go through, it's not really giving life, right? But I pay taxes because I have to. I'm a citizen, right? But here's the thing. God's love isn't supposed to be like taxes, Right? It's not he's not obligated or forced to love you. He just does. We get so good at quantifying whether or not we're good enough, whether or not we measure up, whether or not we're deserving of it. I'm going to break it down to you. God just loves you. And that's good enough. Right? It's not about whether or not you're perfect, whether or not you're good enough, whether or not you're the best kind of Christian. He just loves you. He loves you. It's not out of application. It's out of him being faithful, good. But here's the thing I want to kind of end on this morning. So John's using this agape every single time. The fact that, like, what I'm talking about here isn't just love. It's God's love for us. The love that's in action. The love that's personal. The love that's for the left behind. The love that's unmerited favor. The love that's out of grace and mercy and not obligation. The love that's faithful. The love that's lasting loyalty. The love that's kind. The love that's good. And John says two things that I think is really good for us to hear this morning. The first one is, yes, love is how we see God, how we know God, how we obey God. But in this passage, John is saying, every way that God loves, you are to love. One of my dreams is that we are a church that loves the way God loves. One of my dreams is that, you know, when we talk about the church in North America, you don't often hear love. You don't often hear Jesus even. You don't even hear faithfulness, kindness, goodness. That's not what they use to describe us. But John says in this passage, all of us are called to love the way God loves. If God is love in action, guess what, sisters and brothers? You have to be love in action. If God is for the weakest in our society, the ones leave behind, guess what, sisters and brothers? You have to be for them. If God is kind and good and merciful and compassionate, guess what, sisters and brothers? You have to be kind and good and loving and compassionate. That's what John's saying to us this morning. 19 times he talks about love. Every single time he's saying, how God loves is how you love. How God love is how you love. How God love is how you love. We don't have an option. It's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. Love is how we know God. One thing that's fascinating is in my life I've met two people. One I know personally. The other I just read about, but I think that I know them because I read about them. I met two people in my life who opened up their Bible in Genesis and closed it in Revelation and says, I believe in Jesus Christ. Right? Two people 
of the billions of people who are Christians, the billions who have been Christians, the billions who will be Christians, I know of two people who've opened up the Bible and read it and said, yes, I believe in Jesus. Most of us know God because someone else has invested in us. Most of us know God because someone thought it was valuable enough to invest in us and to teach us about God, right? We do a lot when we think about knowing God. One of the things that's very, very important for us to do is first realize that God laid out the plan for our salvation for the world. Jesus did the work of salvation by dying on the cross, by being raised from the dead. The Spirit is the one who convicts us. But here's the other part, sisters and brothers. We come into the kingdom through our family. We come to the kingdom through people. And remember, when I say family, I'm not talking about the blood that flows through your veins, right? I'm talking about anyone who believes in Jesus Christ is your family, right? We come through the kingdom through people who know God, who introduce us to God. That's why another dream of mine is that as a congregation, we never are short of volunteers for children and youth. One of my dreams is that we're never short because we all realize that someone poured into us to get us into the kingdom, and now is our chance. And it might be working in a nursery. It might be going on a youth mission trip. It might be volunteering in a three-year-old classroom. It might be having a kid over to your house just for a meal to say, how are you doing? Or to show them that God's love looks a little bit different. But all of us have to be about God's children. All of us have to be about investing. People investing in you to get you here. Now's your invitation to do the same. Love is from God to us. There's no greater gift that we can give anyone from salvation. But one of the things that's fascinating to me is that we're all children of the Enlightenment. We're all children of modernism. And what I mean by that is for too long, we as the church have believed this lie that we can argue people into the kingdom. We believe this lie that if we craft the right testimony, if we put up the, the right mirage of what a Christian looks like, if we have it all perfectly said and perfectly prayed, we can win people over through our arguments that we're putting forth. That's logic, that's modernism, that's not Christianity in Jesus. Because you know how we bring people in? It's love. Jesus does the work, right? Like, you can't save anyone. God made the plan for the world. Jesus died on the cross. The Holy Spirit convicts them. All you can do is what? Love. That's how you bring people into the kingdom. Commitment to love. And it's this love that's in action. It's this love that's personal and about your relationship. It's this love to the people who are disadvantaged and weak. It's this love that not because they deserve it. Not only do we not deserve it, it's love because God is love. One of the things that's most fascinating to me is that we often think, you know, <laughs> when God loves, it's because he just has to do it. He's God. But what I'm always struck by is how God personally loves each of us. What I love hearing about is when you hear people's stories, you see major themes, yes, but you always get to a point where it's something that God did for them that got them through. And I think, sisters and brothers, if we have a God who's this personal, it's time we, the church, start being this personal. 
I think if we have a God who's willing to love people who are left behind, it's time we start doing the same. I think if we have a God who's willing to show unmerited grace and favor, I think it's time we commit to doing the same. John is saying this is how God loves, but the big switch he's making here is all of us have to love the same way. So kind of my challenge for you this week, I love giving challenges because it's fun. And you hear the fun stories that come back. My challenge for you this week is to, to love in a way that's unmerited. And, you know, Pastor, when he talked last week, talked about Mother Teresa saying, you know, we need to do little things for great love. I think a lot of times we think, like, how do I do all this? It's so big. And I, I want you to just be creative, right? Love someone this week just because you want to bring light into their world, right? And I'm not talking about do something big. I'm talking about that boss that you don't like. Say hello every day for five days, right? I'm talking about that coworker who annoys you. Buy them lunch, right? And, 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 and it's a great way to practice self-control, actually. It's just have lunch with them and just listen, you know? Just listen, right? I want you to go to the drive-thru. If you're getting stuff for the kids, leave an extra $20 and say, hey, pay for the person next to me and just use it up till it's done. Not because you have to, just because you want to bring light. Because here's the other thing, sisters and brothers. When you choose to follow Jesus, you lose the privilege of complaining about darkness in the world because our Bible, our Jesus says what? You are the light of the world. When you choose to follow Jesus, you lose the privilege of saying the world is messed up, it's broken, it's not as it should be, because our Bible and our scripture and our Jesus says what? I have chosen you to bring healing and brokenness, healing into brokenness, reconciliation into division. We don't get to predict or we don't get to complain about the world being broken, the world being dark, the world being not as it should be, because forever God will say, this is why I'm sending you. This is why I've given you my spirit. Jesus is working on heaven. That's what Jesus is doing. What are we doing? Because for our world that's broken, for our world that's dark, for our world that's not as it should be, God is sending you. Last one is this idea that love is how we obey God. One of my favorite people, um, you know, I, <laughs> sometimes I get on these YouTube rabbit holes. Some of you, one or two of you feel this for me. You go on YouTube, you want to listen to a video, or you want to start something, and then the video ends, you click, you click, you click, and then you blink and you're like, why am I studying colonial Congo and Christianity in 1746? That might just be me, right? But we all get on these YouTube rabbit holes, right? But last night, or this, yeah, this weekend, I was on one with, um, with a guy by the name of Rich Mullins. And Rich Mullins is probably one of the most influential people in my faith, right? And part of the reason is, you know, when I was uh, in high school, uh, there was an old lady at our church, another person who poured into me, who for Christmas, my, my cousin got Point of Grace. I don't know if you guys remember Point of Grace. It was like a Christian band. But I picked there's a bunch of soccer moms from the suburbs, right? And we're like inner city Philadelphia kids. He got a Point of Grace cassette tape, right? And I was just like, to this day, I make fun of him for it. And he, he tries to play, but when he, he'll be here in October. You can make fun of him, too. Um, he still knows the songs. Like, he knows the lyrics and sings along. And if you see my cut, like, he doesn't even look like a Point of Grace fan. He's a Point of Grace fan. You got to make sure when he says, hi, I'm Joe. But, oh, you're the one who likes Point of Grace. It'll be great. It'll go over wonderful. <laughs> but I, I got a Rich Mullins cassette tape. And what was fascinating about Rich was there was some kinship that I felt there. Like I felt someone who was calling out for Jesus and writing about Jesus. First of all, I felt someone who was writing songs based on the Bible. How about that for Christian music, right? Like, I was just like, oh, I can see what, where he got that from the scripture. That's weird, you know? And it's just like Christian music, but it's actually from the Bible. It's wild. 
One of the things I love about Rich is that he says, whenever I look at people, and I look at people who love God deeply, there's always this idea of closeness, right? And what he said kind of changed me because he said, you know what closeness with God is? It's obedience. It's obedience to God. And I thought that was revolutionary because I thought closeness to God was reading my Bible, going to church, working on my faith, trying to grow and all that. But he says, no, it's obedience. Because here's the thing. We all become like what we worship. And if we worship God and we put him first and we actually listen to him when he says, follow me. We actually listen to him when we say, I surrender all. We actually say, you know, the, the Old Testament, even the New Testament, people talk about the heart a lot. And in our culture, we think about heart, we think of some emotional or feelings. When they talk about the heart, they mean the, the true essence of a person. When you say, I surrender all to God, it's not just like, it's like love in action. You're not just saying it. When you say, I surrender all to God, and God says, no, 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 I want your heart. He's talking about the essence of who you are. That means he wants all of you. Your gifts, your skills, your abilities, your hopes, your dreams, all of you. Your finances, your resources, your relationships, your assets, your lack of assets, all of it. God wants all of you. So when you say, I surrender all, God says, do I have your heart? Here's the thing I've learned in my 35 years of living. That question never goes away. God will always ask, do I have your heart? And the best way to answer, do I have your heart, I found, is obedience to God. You want to be close to God, give him your heart. Surrender your all. Pledge your all to him every single day. What I love about Rich, he just talks about how you grew up going to camp, and I went to camp, and every summer you did what? You rededicated your life to God, right? And at some point you get this, like, shame about doing it, right? And you know it's wrong. You're like, am I really saved for the seventh time? Is this how this works? And you work through all that, hopefully, if now, I'll help you. I've been through it. But one of the things I love about what he says, though, is this thing. He says, I don't know why we think that's such a bad thing, rededicating our life to God. I don't know why we think that's something embarrassing, right? Like, if you're able to stop at one point and be like, God, I ain't living it right. I need you. That's a good thing. <laughs> if you're able to say, God, I know I said I followed you, but this year I haven't been, that's a good thing right? And here's the thing about being a Christian. If you want to love God, you have to rededicate to him every single day, every interaction, every relationship. Ask him to come into it. Love is how we see God. You want to see God work? Love the world around you. Love is how we know God. It's how people who knew God introduced us. It's how the Spirit reveals it to us. You want to know God? Love God. But love is also how we obey God. I'd like to invite Pastor Esty and the worship team back up. We're going to close with a song that's pretty familiar to us. It's um, a song called My God is Awesome. And I love this song because it, it calls us, right? It talks about God who can move mountains. It talks about God who hides us from the rain. It talks about God who heals us when we're broken. It talks about God who strengthens us when we've been weakened. God who's our deliverer, God who's our provider, God who's our protector. But as I thought about this song and I thought about this passage, I thought the only way we do justice to what John is saying here is this. It's not just about what God is and who God is and what God does. If we're supposed to love the way God loves, 
when we sing my God is awesome, we need to step in and invite ourselves into the work of God. So when we say God moves mountains, we need to remember our Jesus who says what? Your faith can move mountains. When we say God hides us from the rain, we need to realize that it's now our job to step in to the people who life is beating up and hide them from the rain. When we sing that our God heals us when we're broken, we need to realize that God calls us to heal the broken. When we say God is protector, we need to realize that we're called to protect. God is provider, we're called to provide. Love is how we see God, how we know God, how we obey God. But this morning, as you sing with us, I'd like to invite the intercessors up too. We'll pray for you for anything that's going on. We'd love to pray for you. But as you sing, my God is awesome, I want to invite you, like John did, to love the way God loves. So when you say God is awesome, I want you to ask God in your heart, who do I need to be awesome for? Who do I need in Christ to be provider for? Who do I need in Christ to love? Who do I need in Christ to protect from the rain? Who do I need in Christ to be a deliverer and God's deliverance for? So yes, our God is awesome. But the invitation of being a Christian is that he invites you to partner with him in the spirit to be awesome for your world. Amen? Let's stand and sing together.